0: we began a a new study uh, last week on the life and the epistles of Peter. Um, We'll spend a little bit of time this morning um, kind of reviewing some of what we covered last week. For those of you who perhaps were not able to be here because you're still traveling um, with the new year. Um, but we are going to be studying First uh, and Second Peter this quarter here in the auditorium class. And along with the study of these epistles of Peter, we'll also be looking at the life of this man and this apostle Peter to really ask the question about how the life of Peter and the events that took place in his life uh, may have led to and influenced his writing of these epistles. So he wrote these epistles very near to the end of his life. So he had all of these events, uh, both his early life, when he was alive and worked with Jesus during those three years, and also when he functioned as a pillar in the church and as a minister of the gospel. And how all those events may have influenced what he wrote um, to the recipients here of these two epistles. So uh, first question I'll ask for those of you who maybe were here last week. Um, We'll be looking at 1 Peter, um, in the first part of our class this quarter. Can anybody remember what the overall theme or purpose was for the first epistle of Peter? Peter made warnings or recommendations about what? All right, so this is why reviews are very good. All right, so 1 Peter was written to warn or to encourage the Christians about dangers that might be coming from without the church. So Peter really wrote about in the first epistle the current and impending persecutions that the Christians were facing currently and would be expecting to face even more so in the near future. So he wrote this epistle really as an encouragement to these individuals that, yes, you're going to be facing trials, facing persecutions, but you will endure, and it will be worth it. At the end of this life, it'll be so worth any struggles you faced while here upon this earth. And, you know, these words of encouragement that we'll read about throughout this quarter are just as relevant today as they were during the time of this writing. Because we also face... Not necessarily persecutions per se, but we all face trials. We all face sufferings. Uh, The word suffer is a key word in the first epistle of Peter. He wrote that word numerous times um, because these Christians, they were suffering. This was the time of Nero. And during the time of Nero in the Roman Empire and then the subsequent um, rulers of that time, there was a great persecution of these early Christians. But we also face sufferings today as well. So one of the key verses in First Peter is First Peter chapter four and verse sixteen, which says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So I want you to jot down that verse, First Peter four, sixteen. And if you haven't already, commit that verse to memory. It's a great key verse to this epistle, and really a great encouraging word to think about You know, when we face a variety of trials and sufferings, even in our life. We'll look later on in this quarter at the second epistle that Peter wrote, which he wrote pretty quickly after the first epistle um, from our best kind of timeline. While the first uh, epistle of Peter was really themed about dangers from without or outside of the church, The second epistle, as we'll see, was written more so to warn and encourage Christians about dangers from inside or within the church. False teachers, blasphemy, um, inaccurate information. Peter wrote about all of these dangers to the early church. And knowledge is a word that appears numerous times in 2 Peter, Peter stressed the importance of knowing the gospel, accurate knowledge about God and his will and his plan for us. And we'll come back to that um, about halfway or so through this quarter. All right, so um, as you uh, may remember from uh, last week or perhaps not, uh, Peter wrote to Christians Um, If you look at the first few verses of 1 Peter, he wrote to those elect exiles of the dispersion or of the diaspora. So this means basically Christians that were scattered throughout um, the current world. And he specifically names some of these regions you see on the map here in Asia Minor. So his specific audience were Christians of this region here of Asia Minor, but really this was written more broadly even that to Christians throughout the known world, issuing words of encouragement and warnings as well um, to those early Christians. Now, before we move into like, our study for today, I want to also remind everybody about this overall timeline for Peter's life and where his writings fall. So if you can see here on the screen behind me, we estimate from our best guesses that Peter was roughly the same age as Christ. So he would have been born around 1 B.C., 1 A.D., right at the turn of our um, calendar system. And so he would have been called to become an apostle of Christ when Christ said, Come, become a fisher of men, Um, Around A.D. 30, around the same age that Christ was, from our best guesses, was also when Peter was called to become an apostle. And he would have spent three years working alongside Christ, listening to the words of Christ, watching these miracles of Christ. So then around A.D. 30 to A.D. 33, somewhere in that range, of course, Christ was crucified. And then very quickly after that, he rose, and then he was ascended. And at that point in time, Peter was left behind, as were all of the apostles and disciples of Christ. And they spent that first bit of time wondering, you know, what do we do? Our Lord and our Savior, our leader has has done these amazing things, and then he's left us to go up into heaven. But you'll recall, and we'll study this today, ...that 50 days after the Passover feast, when Christ was crucified, came along the day of Pentecost. And that's when Peter really rose up, stepped up, and preached that first gospel sermon. And then for the next 20 or so years, Peter would be an important figure in the early church. Um, He was a leader, an apostle. He was also a minister and a missionary... And eventually he would travel to Rome and he would spend the last 10 to 15 years of his life in Rome. And it was in Rome that he wrote these two epistles very near to the end of his life. We think somewhere around 60 to 65 A.D. And then he was martyred around 65 A.D. um, And that occurred probably very soon after he wrote um, this second epistle. So this is our overall timeline for the life of Peter and where his writings fall. So you can see here, if he wrote at the end of his life, he's reflecting back upon all these events that he has seen and he's taken part in throughout his life that probably influenced what he would write, the words he would choose to issue to these early Christians that would read his epistle. And then we have, of course, Peter was given a number of names. He was called Simon and Simeon. Um, This is different um, spellings or renderings of the same name. This was the name he was given by his parents. This was his birth name. And then Simon Bar-Jonah just means Simon, the son of Jonah. So we can know from this that his father's name was Jonah. And then uh, Jesus would actually rename Simon as Peter. We read about this in Matthew chapter 16. Um, The word Peter comes from the Greek word petros, which means rock. And Jesus said, I call you petros, and upon this petra I will build my church. I call you rock, and upon this stone I will build my church. The play on the words there, he named Peter the rock. And then he said upon this rock or this confession that he issued there, he would build his church. And then finally, another name we see for Peter is Cephas, which also means rock. Uh, Cephas is an Aramaic word for the word rock. Um, But Peter and Cephas are um, synonymous names for Peter here, Um, one being Greek and one being the Aramaic word for rock or stone. Okay, so that kind of brings us up through our quick review of what we learned about last week and now we're going to turn our attention to 1 Peter chapter 1 uh, verses 3 through 12. And the title for our lesson today is Born Again to a Living Hope. I'm going to read through this passage as we get started and then we'll kind of go back and and dissect what is being written here. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1 We'll begin here in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be, this is a key phrase here, born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. "...who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ." Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We'll pause there for now and then pick up that next paragraph um, a little bit later on. So here in this uh, kind of opening passage, we see really an introduction to this epistle of Peter. All right, Peter is going to write about hope. All right, that's going to be really the theme of Peter's writings. If we can think of one word to summarize these epistles of Peter, it's going to be this one word, hope. And, you know, it's really interesting if you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right, the chapter that Paul wrote on love. At the very end of that chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 13, he's going to write, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Those were Paul's ending words to that great you know, summary that he gave on love. Three remain, faith, hope, and love. It's kind of interesting that three of these apostles that would write Large sections of the New Testament really theme their writings around each of those words. John was the apostle whom Jesus loved. And if you think about, okay, what's a one-word description of John and his writings? Most people would say love. He was the apostle whom Jesus loved. He uses the word love numerous times in his epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. John wrote about love in 1st John chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. He writes, "Beloved, that's one, let us love one another for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Just in those two verses, we've got six uses of the word love. John wrote about love. Well, if you think about Paul, what one word would you say summed up Paul's writings? You may have different answers for this, but I think that a strong case can be made for faith, especially in Romans and Galatians. Paul wrote a lot about faith. And he really compared and contrasted faith and works, right? Remember, Paul stressed the importance of faith when he wrote, right? You are not saved by works. You are saved by faith. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul wrote a lot about the importance of faith for the Christian. So then we come around now to Peter, the topic of our discussion for today and this quarter. Peter writes about hope. Even though these early Christians were going to and were currently enduring a lot of suffering, a lot of trials, Peter's real basis for his writing was, have hope alright You're going to get through it, and there is a prize waiting for you at the end. Hope is what's going to get you through these trials. Hope is what's going to get you through these sufferings. Just look forward, look towards that ultimate prize, and that's what's going to be that seed that you keep in your heart to get you through all these things. That's what Peter wrote about. Um, Wikipedia, I looked up the word hope, and this is what it reads as a definition. An optimistic state of mind that is based on an expectation of positive outcomes with respect to events and circumstances in one's life or the world at large. And as a verb can be used synonymously with expect with confidence, a confident expectation of something. That's what hope is. Or to cherish a desire with anticipation. Confident expectation. That's what Peter wrote when he was uh, trying to issue these words of encouragement to those who would read his epistles. That confident expectation of heaven. That ultimate prize at the end. Because without hope, can we get through all these trials and struggles? Without hope, can you make it through this long period of time on earth, right? If there's nothing to hope for, if there's nothing to look forward to, it's very hard to make it through the trials that we may face on a day-to-day basis. Why do you think Peter, of all people, why Peter would write about hope? Thinking about what you know about Peter's life. And what he did, what he saw, why did he choose hope to write about? You have to something to All right, so number one, he knows what they're enduring and what they will soon endure even more of. So he had to give them something to latch on to, or look forward to, to get through the impending persecutions. So that's one reason, yes. On the very surface, Peter wanted them to have something to hold on to and look forward to. But now I want you to think a little bit deeper about Peter himself. What do we know about Peter? Why would he, of all people, need hope himself? Not only did he betray Jesus, he lost faith in Jesus and sank in the water when he was walking on the water. He betrayed Jesus three times, right? Peter made a lot of mistakes, right? Peter's that man we read about in the gospel accounts that had times of, you know, great success. And then he had times where he was down here scraping the the bottom of the barrel. Peter needed hope. He was the beginning of the we. Peter was Christ established the church, but Peter was the man that was the voice of Christ after his ascension. He was the one that preached the gospel to the Jews and to the Gentiles. Linda. Exactly. But then also, remember, Jesus left him. Jesus went up to heaven, and Peter's like, what do I do now? Well, he's going to have hope because he's going to see his friend again. He and the other apostles developed very close relationships with Jesus. right? Peter, James, and John may be the closest. They were that inner circle. So Peter needs hope for himself to see his Savior, his friend, once again. Peter needs hope because he's a sinner. Just like we are, he needed hope as much as we need hope. And then Peter wanted to share that hope. Peter wanted to share the hope that he had for Christ with all these fellow Christians that were suffering right alongside of him. So it wasn't a selfish hope, it was a giving hope. I want to tell you about the hope that I have, that I need to get through my own struggles. Okay, so this is the theme for this first section of the epistle of 1 Peter is hope. And really it's a theme for the full uh, aspects of his two epistles. So we're going to dissect in um, this writing right here about these uh, these first uh, sort of section, this introduction to um, the epistle. But before we really dive in, I should back up here just for a second. Before we dive into the epistles, I want to go back and read about what Jim just mentioned as the first gospel sermon Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Let's read about kind of the birth of this hope that Peter will write about. So flip back over in your Bibles... You can bookmark 1 Peter, we'll come back to it, but flip back over to Acts chapter 2. So just to set the stage here, uh, we know that Christ was crucified, he was raised on the third day, and then he ascended. And we are now on the day of Pentecost. This is exactly 50 days from Passover, so 50 days after Christ's crucifixion. The apostles are there in Jerusalem with the other close followers of Christ, and they're kind of waiting for, what do we do? And you'll recall that a mighty rushing wind came in, uh, tongues of fire appeared upon the apostles' heads, and they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. So then in verse 14... Uh, Peter, that was the man that did this. He's the one that would preach that first gospel sermon. Standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. So he's the one that would preach this first gospel sermon. Um, He quotes passages here from the prophet Joel. And then he says in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Um, punctuated accusation at these individuals there in Jerusalem. Jesus, the man that was prophesied and was supported through mighty works, the man that God had a definite plan for, you crucified and you killed. But God raised him up, verse 24, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then skip down here to verse 30, uh, speaking about the patriarch David being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. So God made an oath that a descendant of David would be put upon the throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, and that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. They all saw Christ walking on the earth after his resurrection. Being therefore exalted at the the right hand of God. (coughs) And having received from from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. God has raised him. And placed him on his right hand. So then... This is their response. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone, whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That promise that he spoke about right there, that's the hope. All right? These people crucified Jesus. That's their biggest mistake, at this point in time at least. Peter had his own mistakes as well. But they all shared the possibility for redemption through Christ. And that promise right there that Peter wrote about, that would be the hope that he's going to write about now in 1 Peter. So flip back over to 1 Peter. And let's read about that promise. So the hope that Peter writes about here in his first epistle, we're going to break it down into three different um, aspects. The first of those is this hope would be fulfilled in the future. This is the promise that he told those Jews on the day of Pentecost. This is the promise that they had. All right, so let's read here in verse 4. All right, this is a a living hope in verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This is how hope will be fulfilled in the future, through an inheritance. And he says the inheritance has four characteristics. Number one, it is imperishable. It's enduring. It's not going to go away. It will endure. It will not perish. Number two, it is undefiled. It is pure. It is not spoiled or tainted. It is a pure inheritance. Number three, it is unfading. It will not fade over time. Yesterday, we were uh, taking down Christmas decorations from our living room in the house and putting back up all the usual, you know, 11 months out of the year stuff. And I hung one of Jenny's door hangers on the front door to replace the Christmas one that she had. And I was looking at it. It was faded. The colors were faded. The ribbon on it was almost breaking apart. It was almost like collapsing in my hands. Because it's perishable. It's been exposed to the sun and the weather, and it it didn't last. It is fading. But the inheritance that Peter writes about here is one that will not fade, even for eternity. So think about that. Our inheritance, heaven, is going to not undergo sun fading. It will not lose its shimmer and shine, right? The color won't fade away. It's going to stay bright and shiny for eternity, never fading. And then number four here, it's kept in heaven. Our inheritance, God has set aside in heaven. It's waiting on us. That's the hope that he's writing about here, is that inheritance that is, pure, undefiled, unfading, set aside for us in heaven. We sing the song, Mansion Over the Hilltop. I'm satisfied with just a cottage below, a little silver and a little gold, but in that city where the ransom will shine, I want a gold one that's silver lined. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop, in that bright land where we'll never grow old, and someday yonder we will never more wander, but walk on streets that are purest gold. The golden streets of heaven, the mansion that the writer here writes about that's silver lined, is pure, it's undefiled, and it will not fade. And the mansion that's waiting on us is what we can look towards. That's our anchor. That's the anchor that Peter's giving these um, recipients to look forward to to get them through the trials and suffering they would have here upon this earth. In Romans chapter 8, verse 16 through 17, Paul writes, "...the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ." Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Even Paul writes that you're going to have to suffer for a time. But if you endure this brief time of suffering, then, and I love this this phrasing here, we are not only heirs of God, we are fellow heirs with Christ. Right? We have the same inheritance of Christ. Christ has inherited heaven because of his actions and Paul is writing that we are going to share in that inheritance we are fellow heirs with Christ himself Jesus said in Matthew 25 um, come you who are blessed by my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world This inheritance was established at the same time that God created the earth. So all the way back to Genesis 1, when God would create the earth, the inheritance was set aside for us even then. And it's been untainted, undefiled, even from the foundations of the earth and would last that way all throughout eternity. All right, so our hope is fulfilled in the future. Number two... Our hope is rooted in the past. In verse 3, he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why do we have a hope? Because of Christ's sacrifice. That's what gave the hope its integrity. That's why the hope is there. It is based, it is rooted, it is grounded in that uh, gift of Christ. In his death and then also in his resurrection. Yes. Yes. It's a moot point, yeah. Paul writes about that as well in Romans chapter 3. In Romans 3, uh, let's see, beginning in verse 23, here's the plight we're in. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the plight that we're in. And then he would say in Romans six twenty-three: for the wages of sin is death. Everyone sins... And because of that, everyone dies. That's the plight that we're in. There's no hope in that. There is zero hope in those statements. Everyone sins. Because you sin, you die. But the reason we have hope is because of those events that happened in A.D. 30 when Christ was crucified and then when he rose and conquered death to negate the law of sin and death, to provide an out for that destination to death that we were otherwise destined towards. Um, The song, My Hope is Built. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It sums it up. Right? Our hope is built, it's rooted or grounded in Christ, in his blood, because his blood washes us, it cleanses us from all of those sins that otherwise destined us for death, that destined Peter for death, and that destined the early Christians as well toward death. So, our hope is fulfilled in the future, it is rooted in the past, But what about right now? What is the hope doing right here in the present? Whoops, I went too far. It is living. All right? That's that key phrase here in the title for our lesson today. Right there in verse 3, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Our hope is alive today. What does that mean? If something is alive, it's doing something, right? You're all alive. The birds outside are alive. We're doing things. We're walking around. We're talking, right? We have all this stuff going on in our body. Our heart is beating. Our brain is firing all the time. We are doing things. So if hope is alive right now, what is it doing? Any ideas? What's your hope doing for you right now? What makes it alive? It gives us a purpose. Stability. It gives us stability. What else does hope do for you? It gives, confidence. It gives us confidence, yes. Yes. It gives us a goal to work towards. All of these, yes. This is all of what hope is doing for us. So Let's read what Peter says hope is doing. In verse 5, he says, Who by God's power are being guarded. God is guarding us. He is protecting us. Right? We can read in the Bible that a temptation will not overcome you, that you're not able to endure. God is protecting us. Even though we're enduring, salva- we're enduring persecution, salvation, the hope that we have, is guarding us all the while. In verse 6, in this you rejoice. Hope brings us joy because we can think about and know what our inheritance is going to be looking towards the future hope brings us happiness it brings us joy it makes all this that we have to endure upon this earth totally worth it and we can be joyful even in the midst of persecution because we know that we have that hope Um, verse 6 in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary You've been grieved by various trials. Hope will get us through the trials. Hope is the anchor that Kevin just mentioned that's going to hold us and ground us to help us endure these trials. And We can even have joy even through the trials, but hope will get us through them. And that's what Peter tells, that's the theme of his writing here to these Christians. Hope is going to get you through the suffering that you are enduring. James writes in James chapter 1 about suffering as well. In James 1 beginning in verse 2, he writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So these trials are testing us. They are building patience or steadfastness within us, but they're also perfecting us. You think about the analogy of purifying gold or purifying metals. Peter used the analogy right here in his writings. He says there in verse 7, More precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire. This analogy of exposing metals to high heat, to melt away the impurities, to purify the gold or metal you're trying to isolate, this refiner's fire. The trials are doing that to us. James writes, they are helping to perfect us. The trials we endure, we can get through because of hope, but they have a purpose as well. They're helping to refine us, to purify, and to perfect us. And then lastly, I think that Linda is the one that says this, or said this, in verse 9. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, we can have confidence Hope gives us confidence in who we are, what our purpose is, and where our destination is going to be. In verses 10 through 12, he'll go on to write about that confidence. So when we have a few minutes, I'll, I'll read this real quickly here. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who were prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And this is what's important here. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have been announced So what he's saying here is these prophets of old that foretold Christ, that foretold his death, burial, and resurrection, right? They weren't writing for themselves. They were writing for you. What does that mean? Why? Well, here it is. We've seen, because we have hindsight, that all these prophecies came true. They were fulfilled in Christ. So, the early Christians and us with hindsight, we can see that God followed through with his promises. And if God followed through with those promises, we have confidence that he will follow through with these promises. He's promised an inheritance to these Christians. And we can have confidence. ...that we will receive that inheritance because we have evidence from all these prophecies of the Old Testament. We have evidence that God keeps his promises. So that we're better off in that regard than even the men and women of the Old Testament. They couldn't always see God's promises carried through. But we have this ability to have hindsight we can see that God fulfilled his promises. These prophecies, they came true. And if we can know that those came true, then the promise we have through our hope will also come true. So that was our second bell. We'll stop there for the day. And thank you for your attention.